Well, hello everyone. Welcome back. It's good to see you all. Uh, we are going to finish up tonight. We mainly want to look at First Corinthians and Timothy. Um, there's loads more little bits in the Bible, but they are uh, places it's easy to get tripped up. So places to take care and unpack. Um, I, we're going to start, have a look at First Corinthians. Um, and I've given you the front part of the handout is a kind of a, uh, know, like an outline of that text so we can all walk through it carefully. Um, and then we'll pause, we'll have some questions. We'll take a little look at um, a few chapters later, First Corinthians 14. Um, have some more pause questions. Hopefully that'll be about half time and then we can change ends and then Molly will lead us in Timothy. And so I'm going to pray for us and uh, yeah, we'll dive in. Jesus, thank you for your word, that it guides us, it reveals truth and beauty, and um, we are so glad you've given us your spirit who, uh, who produced this and whose role it is to reveal truth to us. Because without your work, Jesus, we don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance of even understanding it, let alone applying it, absorbing it, internalizing it, and conforming our lives to your way. So Jesus, help us. Guide our thoughts, guide our questions, help us come before your word with open hearts, open minds, ready to listen for your voice as you move us forward. Amen. Okay. So... We're going to dive straight in. If we end up with time at the end, all the other things floating around my head. We've got time for that later. Um, it's just funny thinking about this for a few weeks in a row. I feel like I'm bursting with all these, all these thoughts and all these yeah, questions, conversations with people. But first Corinthians. So uh, what I've put here is a section from First Corinthians 11. Um, verses 3 to 16. And the way Corinthians is arranged, the whole book is there's a kind of introductory section and then there's a series of homilies, like uh, rabbinic essays on different topics. Um, and there is a, um, a section in Corinthians beginning in chapter 11, verse 2, going through to uh, chapter 14, verse 40. And that is one of the essays in the book of Corinthians. Um, and it's all about worship, like how to worship, what orderly worship is, how it functions, things like that. And, and these were things that the Corinthians had written to Paul about, because he introduces a section of essays by saying, now, you wrote to me about some stuff. Here we go. And so he's responding to some of the things they've asked him. Um, but there's a kind of rhetorical style for a rabbi, and Paul was a rabbi, so his normal mode of writing would have been rabbinical. Um, and that is uh, this kind of ring uh, structure to presenting things. And so uh, it's very reflective of sort of Hebrew poetry, but it doesn't follow quite the same rules. But you'll have the outside of the ring... So there might, might be a, a similar theme is discussed first and last. But 
discussed in a way that they complement each other. So the reader's thinking, oh, I'm going to... Because we tend to think in like a linear train of thought, not the way that Paul wrote or his listeners would have been used to hearing um, from a rabbi. Um, they thought more, okay, you've introduced an idea, and then we're going to go, we're going to peel the onion back a bit, go another ring in, and the second thing that you're going to talk about then is then going to illuminate that. But then you're still, you're going to finish that idea second to last, you'll bring it home, and then last will close the first ring. And so you can have all these, do you get the idea, these kind of rings that uh, they mutually complement each other. And then the core idea, the key, like the light bulb's got to go on, you guys have got to get this, is always at the center of the ring. Okay? And so th- this structure plays out in the verses we're going to look at, but it plays out in this whole section as well. And so I wrote down the, um, the sort of big chunks of the rings. And so the first uh, section, the one we're looking at, is men and women leading in worship. It's about prophecy and prophets and praying and, and how they dress. Um, and the last ring of this section is about men and women worshipping. So you see, first and last topic, both about men and women worshipping. We go in a ring. The second topic is about order in worship. And he talks about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because there are all sorts of issues in Corinth. People are getting drunk, like all sorts of weirdness is going off. And so, like, what does orderly worship look like around that sacrament? And we follow that ring round to the end of the discourse and go in one theme. And it's order in worship again, and it's to do with words. Paul talks about prophecy and tongues. People are talking over each other. There's bedlam. It's all disorder again. So orderly worship is the second ring in. And we go one ring further in. So the third thing that's talked about is gifts and the nature of the body. So this is our fairly well-known territory of 1 Corinthians 12, that God gave gifts and these manifestations of the Spirit for the building up of the body. But if we then go to the third ring in from the end, we see the same theme pop up again. It's all to do with spiritual gifts and building up the body in chapter 14. And so what's at the centre? Can anyone remember 1 Corinthians 13? All about, all about love. So the hymn of love sits in the middle as like the thing you've got to get to make sense of why you're supposed to follow the directions, to really appreciate the fact that you're a body, to understand how God wants to work through gifts, and then out how that's going to play into orderly worship, and then out to the outermost ring how that, that is going to be manifest in men and women, how they relate and, and function in the church, in, in worship. And when I say worship, I don't mean like, well, we use the word worship for the bit where we sing and stand up and hold our arms up in the air. Um, I mean, it would be public prayer, public prophecy, which is very similar to our sermon, um, maybe reading of letters, um, things like that. Is that, is that basically gathering together? Um, and singing hymns, reading psalms, all, reading scripture aloud, all these sorts of things. So this ring pattern is really important. And it's um, something in our English Bible, it can be really easy for us to miss because we're expecting a linear thought. So we think Paul's going to say something, develop it, develop it, develop it, develop it. And the end of a section is the conclusion and the most important part. 
And when we do that, we're, we're so liable to misread. So really important to get the structure. And that's why this is nice, it's a visual, right? You can see the middle of our ring is gonna be the um, authority part. Uh, because of this, a woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. What on earth does that mean? We'll get to that, we're gonna get there. We've all wondered, right, what on earth are the angels doing shouting up here? It's okay. I read a lot of books. There's some good answers. We got hope. Uh, it's going to be, and never mind the whole question of women in ministry. I've just, you know, scratched my head long and hard over why angels are cropping up here in this chapter. So I'm just satisfied to have some closure on that issue. Okay, so um, what, what we want to be aware of then is is how to read this. So part of it is structure, so we notice the right things in the text to help us unpack it, help us make sense of it. The other thing is the questions we bring to the text so often shape what we walk away with. Um, uh, just as an example, um, you know, if you have been a part of a tradition or a background, or never, even if it's not in the church, but you've just heard it in culture, so much talked about that like uh, women should be under male authority and you're, and you're bringing that as an expectation like I know that's a biblical theme that women are supposed to be under male authority okay those things we bring those, those things we already carry with us the assumptions and questions what we do when we read a text and try to make sense of it is we don't start with a blank piece of paper whenever we read anything our brain is, is like on the hunt for familiarity familiar ideas and so it's really easy for us to bring something like that or something like um, women should always wear a head covering in public which I, I hope it doesn't turn out to be true otherwise like all the ladies in this room got to get a hat real quick um, or uh, women were created to serve men like we bring those kind of assumptions to the text it's really easy for there to be a, a sort of echo of an idea we have that's there's some familiarity bouncing off some of the words in the text but that doesn't mean that's what the text says that just means as a mnemonic device something that we've got a memory for has got some sort of familiarity with some of the words in the text we've got to dig a bit deeper and actually be careful and say, is that what Paul really intended? Is that what he meant? I'll be walking away with the right lesson. So let's go through with a little bit of care. Take a look. So, um, okay, let's do some of the background stuff. Think about how to do this. So they had written to Paul um, with a bunch of questions about how to be Christians in their culture, in Corinth. Corinth is this Greek city, very cosmopolitan, loads of languages, loads of culture, loads of diversity. Um, you've got Jewish Christians, Greco-Roman Christians, all forms of paganism. Like It's a real hodgepodge of a culture. And so there's a lot of confusion. Um, and that's to be gracious to the Corinthians, because sometimes we read through it and we're like, what, you all got drunk during communion? Like, what a bunch of weirdos. Like, from our point of view, where we've learned some stuff about order, thank you for this letter, Paul, 
we can sort of look at their concepts and think, man, these guys were wackadoodles. Like they, they were kind of crazy. But it was a crazy culture that they were a part of. Um, and so what, one of the things, uh, like gender roles comes up quite a lot in this letter. And just the roles of functions of people and how they're supposed to relate to each other. So much of this section of worship is about being a body, about mutual interdependence. It's a huge theme in these sort of three, four chapters. Um, and it, it seems like by uh, looking at the sort of laundry list of things Paul is addressing, that one of the things that was going on in this church was they had taken something like the phrase, all things are lawful for me, to be a sort of carte blanche, do whatever you want, like anything goes. So people are like, eating eat meat without care for how it's going to affect people, whether it was bought in this market or that market, whether it was sacrificed to a god, divorcing people left, right and centre, you know, they're just, uh, yeah, there's a lot of freedom being exercised, but not with the great deal of direction. I'm choking up. So, uh, yeah, we, we get to this section in front of us where head coverings and how people should dress is being addressed. Ha ha. You can do your... I should have given you a snare drum and a hi-hat. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give it to you for that one. Yeah, it's, it's really poor. <laughs> I repent. Um, and concerning dress, that tone... So we're, we're coming at a sort of an author who is writing to some people knowing there's something about their dress a sort of tone of anything goes where he's having to address guys it's not anything goes like there's something about how you dress that actually matters and he's going to lay it out and explain it for them so um, these head coverings get mentioned so a bit of culture of head coverings if you had a Jewish background and you were a self-respecting woman you would have covered your head in public. Really a normal thing to do. Um, in fact, the, the Mishnah, which is one of the sort of Jewish writings, sort of how to apply the law in the Greco-Roman culture, says that women who don't cover their head should be divorced. So it's not just like, oh, kind of unusual, You're not, you've not got a head covering, but really uh, breaking social codes to not wear a head covering. But the head covering function very similar to how it does in lots of modern Islamic cultures today. Um, by wearing a head covering, a woman is saying, I'm a respectable person. I've got a family that cares for me. And if you mess with me, there's going to be consequences. Like I'm connected to a family. And so it kind of situ it's a way of dressing that situates you in society as a particular way that you're embedded in family in that society. Um, if you were from a Greco-Roman background, then not quite the same connotations for a head covering for you. Uh, but women did normally cover their heads still, uh, and especially respectable women. Uh, the glaring exception to this, the people who didn't cover their heads, were the, and I'll say this word right, uh, the uh, heterae, Maybe I should have said that more boldly. Greek word. But basically, the sacred prostitutes. 
So part of worship in fertility cults throughout the Roman Empire, but there was a big one in Corinth, was uh, female prostitution was a part of being a priest. Like, basically, sex was, was part of a priestly practice. Um, and that can kind of surprise us and feel really weird, but we actually see that all through the Old Testament. Like, the reason you've got Eli's sons having sex with people at the temple was because having sex at a temple was a really common practice as part of fertility rituals. Um, and I say having sex with, I mean, uh, lots of those rituals were not consensual. Uh, like in parts of Canaan, the way they celebrated the birth of a child was to have the village elders come and rape the woman who just given birth. So loads of weirdness around this stuff. Um, and, uh, but you've got to get the different connotation. For a Jewish woman, being uncovered is like, ooh, not respectable. For a Greco-Roman woman, it's not so much not respectable, but actually respected priestess in a fertility cult. And so it says something about, about your identity. So, um, what, what we need to now go into reading this through is with also the positive understanding of the things that are clear that the work Paul has already done. And we've done a survey of that last week and on the podcast. Talked about like the kind of ways that Paul points at women being significant in church leadership, as apostles, as prophets, as leaders, in all sorts of different ways um, that Paul mentions loads of women in his letters, in different roles, talks about gifts being given to men and women. And not just Paul. Um, but especially since this is a letter from Paul, it would be really weird for Paul to contradict himself, and especially for him to contradict himself in the same letter. So I hope some of that stuff is kind of floating in the background of your memory, because we don't want to repeat last week. Um, and so it would be very weird if the lesson we took away from these verses was women are not supposed to be involved apart from as recipients of what the men do, or something like that which people do sometimes read these verses and take away a theology of gender and ministry, which is men do all of it. Uh, women can be recipients. And then there seems to have developed this side clause for practical reasons of like, but childcare and hospitality is also okay for women. Quite where that came from, I do not know. Okay, so on to Paul's argument then. So let's take a look. Um, so what we want to do is, is look at the rings and try to take them as a set. Like there's a kind of complete idea. We're going to work our way in and then that should help us make sense of the middle. And then as we kind of go back out again, we should understand why Paul is raising these ideas. And that's kind of the flow of thought for an ancient reader or an ancient listener because most of them would have heard this letter rather than read it. There'd be sort of the onions being peeled, they're putting these ideas together, connecting them together, and then they slowly get completed. And then, like one of those magic eye drawings, you know, you stare at it long enough, and eventually you're like, oh, it's a cat. And then you can see what it is. Paul's not talking about cats, though. Okay, so we begin here uh, with now, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the word head here is the Greek word kephale. And that word means head. Which is a real bummer. 
because if it meant something more precise, we'd be out, we'd be in, in the clear. Like, it would be so much easier. The Greek word just literally means this thing sat on top of your shoulders. It's just that for Greek users, head could be used figuratively in a couple of ways. One was like the head as in origin. Like we might talk about the headwaters of the Nile or you know something like that. So we still have that sort of figurative use of head in English. Uh, and the other is authority, which we also have. Uh, like, oh, he's, like, he's the head of the company, he's the head of the board, or something like that. So we have both of these metaphors uh, in English, and they have them in Greek. But there's nothing about this word that pins down whether the figurative use is the origin or the authority kind of thing. Or maybe both, uh, which is a, a, in Greek literature we see sort of duality of figurative language all the time. Uh, the one thing it can't mean is head, because I don't know if you've like looked at me and Molly, but neither one of us is the head of the other person. You know, it's just, it's clearly it's not being used in a literal sense. So let's try and make sense of it. So, um, uh, and we've, oh, by the way, this, uh, this layout is taken from an excellent, excellent book by Kenneth Bailey called Paul Through Mid Middle Eastern Eyes, the title's at the top. Um, he is a sort of biblical studies professor who has done a ton of work about trying to use a sort of deep knowledge of the cultures of the first century world to illuminate how we can read with fresh, not or fresh eyes to us, but read the letters with first century eyes to really tune ourselves into what the author meant to the original recipient. Um, and so this... Uh, this looks really fancy. I'm not this fancy. I stole it from him. But it's very helpful for us to have it all laid out in a nice picture. Um, and, and he's actually put the origin in brackets as a suggested rendering. So why origin or source rather than authority? Well, Paul has just used source thinking in a previous section when he's been talking about the Christ-God relation. So where the third sort of stanza of this little section says the head of Christ is God, that idea just cropped up in 1 Corinthians 8. So I want to read that to you. He says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Hear that source language. From whom are all things and for whom we live. For there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul, in the last section, that's now flowing into this section, has, in the last uh, homily, I should say, has just used a clear source language to talk about Christ finds his source in the Father, and we find our source in Christ. So that as a context in the immediate sort of chapter surrounding what we're looking at is when you do hermeneutics and you're like, I don't know what a word means. If the author uses the same word or the same concept in the near context, that's one of your like number one top indicators that you know which way you should go in interpreting something. Um, so the near context highly suggestive that source language is going on here, and then um, the woman and man part. The head of woman is man. That recalls Genesis two. 
And it, there's so much Genesis allusion throughout Corinthians that it seems, again, we, we don't have what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. So we try to read between the lines a little bit. But it seems highly likely that the Corinthians were misinterpreting some of Genesis. Uh, and that there's, he keep, Paul keeps bringing it up to correct some faulty understanding about the origin stories of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and so the fact that Paul is sprinkling Genesis throughout Corinthians, when we see the head of woman as man, we should be thinking, oh, Paul's probably like hypertexting, hyperlinking back to Genesis again. And in Genesis, the woman from man is not authority language. You know, he, he actually you know, cut man down the middle and took Eve out of man. It's a clear source language in Genesis. So in two out of the three of these, we've got some clear context that suggests source language. So we're in pretty good shape to go with what's on the sheet here. There's some sort of origin context. I will just, as a, a, a caveat, say, um, like we introduced this whole series with, um, there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of discoveries and biblical studies continuing to illuminate things. Um, some people think the origins in the foreground that there's still some sense of authority that's supposed to be at play in the text as well. Um, you know, that's uh, no one's going to think you're a heretic if you think that by any you know anything like that. Um, I I'm not arguing for that because I think it's on more tenuous ground. I'm going to write my answers in pencil, but I would write that very lightly. Um, so, yeah, that just gives you an idea where we're at. Okay, so we've we've got this sort of theological principle laid out laid out for us, um, and this kind of grounds us then in into the whole argument, forward into the whole argument, and uh, now Paul is going to start talking about people praying or prophesying. So a man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. A woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. So we'll a little understanding to do here, right? Because for one of them, having something on your head, bad. For the other one, having something on your head, good. So what's the difference? What's going on? But before we do that, I want you to notice one thing. Paul assumes that both men and women are praying and prophesying as part of the leading of public worship. That is not questioned here. That is assumed. He doesn't say women shouldn't. He just says when they do. Okay? So that's almost so obvious that we can skip over that in trying to understand the hard bits we want to wrestle with. But that's a really obvious point that should set the tone for us. Okay, so... Why would a covered man, a head-covered man, be a dishonour? Well, servants in the Middle East, it was normal for them to cover their heads in the presence of their masters. So we're going to go on a little theological journey here, so stay with me. So that was a sort of, if a man was wearing a head covering, normal indication of subservience to a master. Well, and you might think, Hey, aren't we all servants of Jesus? Like, isn't that a good thing? Well, in John 15, Jesus called the disciples no longer the servant category, but the category of friends. 
right? And in John 10, Jesus actually modelled his intimacy with them on his own intimacy with the Father, which is profound. That the intimacy, the access that Jesus has with the Father is supposed to be the model for the kind of intimacy and access we can have with Jesus. So when Jesus says friends, what he's talking about is no small thing. It's a big, big deal. It's like any social, class, structural kind of barrier between us and him is being knocked down and we're being invited into uh, a radical kind of partnership. Um, so that's John 10. And uh, this, this breaking down of the barrier, so I like using that phrase because that makes us think, okay, how was a barrier torn down? Because of the cross. The cross made this peace, this partnership, this reconciliation, this acceptance possible, which is like read Romans 3, Romans 5. Paul talks at length about the means to a radical kind of acceptance. Um, and then once granted, to pick up Paul's language again in 2 Corinthians, we can stand with unveiled faces in full intimacy with God. So there's all this language from Paul um, and these concepts in the Middle East. And it helps the penny drop. Oh, so in public worship, for a, for a worship leader, and remember, they don't have to have a guitar. They could be prophesying, they could be praying, they could be reading a psalm, reading a letter, they could do all sorts of things. But to wear a head covering would signal a position, a relationship with God that isn't actually true. It would be to put the barrier back up again. And just as like a, an emotional kind of hook for us to think about this, think about the story of the prodigal son. Remember, the son comes back, radical acceptance back into the family, like re-adoption back into the family. And the father puts his cloak, his special cloak, over the son and then invites him to a banquet. What would it have been like if the son had then turned up to the banquet and been like, yeah, I can't wear the cloak, dude. I can't do it. I'm not wearing it. It would be a rejection of something that radical and important that the father had done. So there's similar kind of stuff going on for men and head coverings. Okay? Um, what about a woman? So why would an uncovered woman cause dishonor? Well, culturally, we learned a bit about what the sort of connotation of wearing a head covering or not for a female was, and it would be inappropriate exposure. In fact, the, the Jewish Talmud, which is a comment, like a Jewish rabbinical commentary, even says that a woman's hair is sexual incitement. So you're a woman, you show your hair, that's like you're just trying to chat a guy up. It's like flagrant, obvious, cheesy chat-up line. Um, in, in the coarsest way in the Jewish mindset. Kind of weird for us to even imagine that, right? We're so used to just seeing everyone's hair all the time, but for them, that, that would be the impression it would leave. Um, so culturally, really difficult. And, and then we, uh, we go into the example, uh, for it's the same as if her head was shaved. Um, if a woman won't veil herself, maybe she should cut off her hair 
But if it's disgraceful for a woman to be shorn, then let her wear a veil. Okay, so let's keep following the thought. This is a, we would use the Latin phrase in, in the West, a reductio ad absurdum. Paul wants to make his point, but what he's going to do, he's going he's to say like, oh, like, having an uncovered head, you, uh, it's really unfortunate you're in the front row of women here, because I just like, hang on point at the women in the front row as the people who are saying this, and it's not you saying it. I should point at Molly. So, you woman, you, you want to you wanna uncover your head? Like, that's so inappropriate. Man, if you're going to do that, you might as well shave your head. Well, what would that signify? Well, again, in the ancient Near East, at this time, for men to have long hair was considered effeminate. And crossing sort of those gender boundaries, blurring the line between whether you're a male or you're a female, was disgraceful, was dishonouring, which is why the word disgraceful appears in the text. And on, on the flip side, for a, a woman to cut off her long hair and have a man's hair is disgraceful. So the problem here, the sort of reductio is like, okay, you don't want to wear a head covering, why don't you just then shave your hair? If the hair's the problem, because it's inciting people to sexual whatever, then cut it off. Oh, but if you do that, that's even more disgraceful. Because then you're kind of blurring gender distinction. Like men and women that like God created too, we're not supposed to become some sort of androgynous third. And so it's a sort of reductio of absurdum to say like, well, of course you don't want to do that. So the option is to cut your head. Like that's the, that's the only option. And remember, this can sound really harsh, but he's talking to a church where the vibes and some of the instilled habits have been like, Anything goes, go crazy, go nuts, it doesn't matter, we're all free in Christ. So he's using this kind of really absurd example to press his point home about the practice. Okay, so they should follow Paul's advice. They should wear a veil. Right, now we'll go in a ring, okay, to, to verses 7 and, I should have drawn lines, join this up, 7 and 13. Okay. So Paul now brings Genesis back into the fold again, um, saying, A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. So because there have been, or it seems likely, like mishandling of Genesis to marginalise women, Paul goes from Genesis 2 now back to Genesis 1. And you remember week one, Genesis 1, was all about both co-heirs, co-laborers, co-partners, co-image bearers, male and female together, like on, on co-commissioned, like all the things in Genesis 1 that God speaks over humanity, he speaks over men and women. Uh, but Paul says it in a way that might surprise us, because we might think, why didn't you just say that? Well, he's not us. He's in a different culture, different context. So we just got to, we got to try and enter his world for a little bit here. Um, so he brings uh, Genesis 1 into play. Um, so the first, first we have the man uh, ought not to cover his health, his head because he's the image and glory of God. And so there's a little overlap between the third section and the fourth here. 
he's he's ended with the practice of like so you girls cover your head and you men uncover your head and now there's a little overlap between the rings but then the why what's the principle um he's the image and glory of god note that it doesn't say the woman is the image of man i've actually like in the 21st century run into guys who had a theology where they thought males were the image of god and females were the image of man that's heresy like that's just heretical theological anthropology it's wrong it's bad no so if you ever run across anyone like that a couple of slaps you set them straight okay take them back to genesis one show them what's what so it doesn't say that um but the like pointing at the image bearing is uh, is important grounding in a principle like that god created this image and glory of god so so god as the ultimate partnership the ultimate mutually independent uh, so interdependent triune partnership has expressed himself in creating and the glory of that is an image bearing man but and and when we say gl- glory it uh think like crowning glory like god has glorified himself by putting his image in a human but the story didn't stop there because the story was incomplete the man flying solo by himself couldn't do it it was wrong it wasn't good like the the story wasn't complete but when god brought woman along then the glory of what god has set in motion by creating image bearing in humanity became this glorious whole so that what what paul's trying to point out here is male by themselves or, or he could have said female but the way genesis tells it is male first there's there's an incompleteness because this mutual interdependence that god has has not been reflected in his in his image bearers yet but when god actually brings woman along and creates the partnership now it's glorious and this is really sad because it's really easy for people to read this verse with the english connotations that glory of has which aren't in the greek and think oh this means like you know woman is just there to kind of adorn maleness like if anything it's the other way around like you know maleness should should read this and just feel our incompleteness and then look at the female partners that god also put into his creation and be like that's good now it's glorious instead of a demeaning thing is an elevating thing okay we will keep moving on so we move in another ring um, to uh, verse eight. Um, oh, actually, I haven't been. I haven't been doing the other side of the rings. Um, Yo, we'll keep. We'll do not what I said. We'll just read them and come back to them. It's okay. So we'll keep moving in. So uh, eight and eleven now. So there are two ways. The understanding the relationship between men and women could go wrong okay if mutual interdependence is the right way the two ways are obvious one is that men are superior to women the other would be that women are superior to men 
And what Paul does is he basically knocks those two errors out of the park and says, no, well, it can't be that, and it can't be that. So, for the man is not from woman, but woman is from man. And then down in verse 12, just as this, the woman is from the man, so also the man is born through the woman. And that ring that gets completed, reminding us of the theological principle in, verse, in the first section, it's all, and it's, they're both from God. Like the, only, the only actual clear line of dependence that always exists is to God. But it says there's ways in which men are dependent on women and ways that women are dependent on men. And so he, he throws both of those out there to say, you know, if you've got a, a theology of gender when men are superior to women, no. Like one of, these, one of these sections here says that can't be. And if you've got it the other way and you think women are superior, no. Paul says that's not the case either. So he's trying to, he's trying to hold this space for mutual dependence and hold away the errors on either side. You still with me? Yeah? Okay. Now we get to the middle part, the core rings, verses 9 to 11. So you'll notice this Greek word in brackets, dia, D-I-A, and it occurs four times. So this Greek word could be translated for, or it could be translated because of. And this is really important because in our English, to say, I don't know, um, like, uh, Molly was created for Jake. That can have a connotation of like, oh, like she's there to serve him or help him or do something for him. You know, like if your boss brings you into his office and says like, I hired you for me. There's a clear sort of connotation of subservience, so like a, a non-spoken idea that we know, yeah, the, the word for, it says this, but it kind of means this as well. You get that? You feel, you, can you think of some uses of like the way we use the word for in English that has that connotation? In the Greek, that connotation is not there. So this is one of these cases where we can read the words, woman is created for man, and think, oh, that's a verse that just states outright that women is supposed to be, I don't know, in some sense, subservient to men. But that would be to draw a theological conclusion from a connotation of an English translation that's not in the Greek text. That is to get things like seven shades are wrong. Like that's, I mean, you're in a hermeneutics class and your professor's throwing the hardback book at your head at this point. It's like, no, no, no. That's not how we treat the scriptures. We don't draw theological conclusions from ideas that we have related to the English words that have nothing to do with the Greek words. So that's why I really like translating dear as because of. It gets that connotation out of the picture. It's a little bit of more laborious wording, but it helps us read it a bit more clearly. So let's just read it with the because of language. Uh, so the man was not created because of the woman. But the woman was created because of the man. Because of this, the woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. And then you get the end of the ring. Like, again, you change for to because of. And actually, instead of women appearing subservient in this passage, 
actually what sings from the page is the idea that man was incomplete and the mutual dependence required woman to come along to complete the picture to make it glorious. It's the opposite of what we often get at a surface level reading of our English translations, which I'm not damning the translations. It's really hard to translate. It's really hard to get it right all the time. Um, I do wish they'd use because of instead of for. It just seems obvious, but do you know what? When a lot of translations were written, people weren't asking these questions of this text. And so there you go. Bit of of modern questioning and we go, light goes on. We're like, oh, okay. I see a clearer way. So we get rid of the connotation. So it wasn't that the woman couldn't go solo. Like there was dependence on them. Uh, it, It was the man that, that couldn't go solo, and we we talked about this uh, like nice nice recall. We spent a lot of time in Genesis one and two, and we talked about the Ezer figure, the help, which is most often used of God Himself. This powerful figure comes along to save or render aid for someone who is unable to do something, that they need someone else. There's an incompleteness, and I know we might use the English word like the hamstrung without something. Um, and so it's, it's uh, evoking that Genesis picture again. And notice that these verses, they do have a single kind of theme of dependence. Like, uh, you know, th- this kind of... Uh, wh- Paul keeps pointing at a picture of one half of the gender picture, the partnership, and there being a problem. And then on the other side of the ring, he points at the other part of the gender partnership. And again, there's an incompleteness. Um, so, so all of this incompleteness, all of this, something's not right about male without female, or even female without male, or superior to, or anything like this. There's this problem, there's this problem, and then we get to the core, the, the crux of it, the middle of our, uh, our ring. So the most important idea, because of this, the woman should have authority on the head because of the angels. Um, and at this point, we're a little disgruntled because we're like, you know, I was kind of expecting the core to be just like this obvious thing. And because we're not first century sort of thinkers inhabiting a rabbinic world, it is far from obvious to us. But we can enter that world and it's going to start to make a little more sense for us. So, um, the, the idea of having authority on the head is one that we're familiar with. Well, I am. Maybe not so much you guys. We've got a queen. She wears a crown. Okay? She doesn't wear one every day, but when she puts the crown on, it signifies, oh, there's something about to happen in the relationship. Like there's some kind of function that's about to be fulfilled because her dress is signifying something about her role. Okay? And so uh, Paul is saying, you know, the, the way if she has something on her head, it says something, it, it releases an authority in her function. Okay? Um, which given what Paul said about Hey, men and women, you're both supposed to be prophesying. Men, you can go wrong this way. Women, you can go wrong this way. But if you go right, 
and you put the head covering on, then you're pushing away some of the misconstruals of your, like your role and your function because of culture, and you're embracing some of the reality of being a kingdom partner, which is a fulfillment of Genesis. And that's authoritative. And there's a commissioning for you to then do the praying and prophesy, do the leading, function in the church. But what about the angels bit? Well, in the rabbinic circles at this time, they had this view that the angels were actually involved in creation. So God was the sign of superintendent and worked by a spirit to create, but involved the angels as this kind of devolved authority working in creation. And then when the six days of creation were complete, they thought, and actually they pull this from uh, right, this, uh, Job 37, uh, they had this idea that there was a kind of party that it was fitting at the end of creation that there should basically be a round of applause. There should be an audience applauding and praising God. And that was the angels. Um, but they also had this uh, idea that in the same way the angels had been involved in the process of creating these six days, they had also been given authority to, I don't know, have a duty of care like to have an eye on the maintenance of the order of creation. And that when recreation happened, those same angels were on duty, waiting to applaud God again for his new creative work. Okay? So that is a sort of rabbinic worldview. Now you pull that from Paul and the early church into the first century church, for whom the church themselves, the body of Christ, God crashing heaven and earth together, creating new Eden realities in his people. New creation was happening. It was beginning in the church. So it's really sort of uh, just close at hand for Paul to be able to use this metaphor of like, man, so that the angels can applaud new creation. So, so that the new reality of God is manifest so that the angels will cheer so that enables us to maybe like, paraphrase what Paul is saying at the centre of this, is that when a woman covers her head and pushes back on culture and embraces God's Genesis vision for partners and then authoritatively then is commissioned and functions in the church in the way God designed, the angels cheer because new creation is happening which is actually a really, really beautiful sort of climax. And, and that is the idea of a ring pan. The thing in the middle is not just the most important, but it's the kind of climax. It's the, you know, if you walk away thinking, that was really cool, it's the bit of the middle. And that is really cool and is really beautiful. So let's fly our way back out down the other side of the ring. Um, so if that's the reality then of this partnership, going back out on the ring we've got this idea of dependence and so uh, more specifically uh, which you'll see the word plen which is the, the, um, another Greek term it's actually a, a technical term that introduces a kind of uh, a key point or key idea um, so more specifically is our English way to try to say Paul wants to highlight something really important the woman isn't independent of man nor man independent of woman in the Lord. So it completes the idea on the other side of the ring 
but it actually gives a really complete statement of this idea that men and women are not supposed to be independent. This is not a hierarchy. This is a partnership. And so Paul just said, like, we need each other. We need each other. Um, and then we carry on back out in the ring. The, the reason for that mutual, in, uh, sorry, I keep saying independence when I mean dependent. I'm like, I'm sure there's some heresy on the tape here. Um, hopefully you guys are just being gracious and filling in the words that you know I mean to say. Um, the reason for this, again, is, is in the, the created order of how male and female came to be. God did things in a way that's supposed to illustrate this dependence. Because just as the woman is from the man, so also the man is born through the woman. Like, without the women, there's no men. Like, you, you're, you're stuck in the water. Uh, but then the reminder, again, on the second side of these rings, the sort of, let's bring it home, like, let's contextualize the idea in its fullness. All things are from God. And then, like, jumping back up to the ring, you know, we had this reductio ad absurdum, this description of like how dishonorable it would be. Uh, basically, Paul is pointing at this is the practice that's going to work. Men, you should have, shouldn't have your head covered. Women, you should have your head covered. And so we just have a statement of that. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for all women to pray to God unveiled? Um, and then that is sort of restated, this practice in the uh, 11th section, does not nature itself teach you that for a man to wear long hair, it's a dishonor, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, because her hair is given her for a covering. And then Paul situates his advice as letting them know, I'm writing to you, I'm answering your questions, this is what everyone's doing, guys. Okay, this is the Greco-Roman world. If anyone's disposed to be contentious, we recognize no other practice, nor do any of the other churches of God. And so he's basically said, this is what everyone's doing, which is, an, I, I love, like he's done this amazing theological reductio ad absurdum, like no one should be thinking that women should pray and prophesy with their head uncovered. But then he just kind of rubs it in and says, by the way, everyone else is doing this. So, you know, if you want to be weird, you go ahead, but everyone else is doing this because it's really sensible. Um, and, and so hopefully this, this passage makes a bit more sense. You can see what's going on. I want you to notice that the idea that a woman is supposed to be subservient to a man is not here. The idea that women are not supposed to exercise their gifts in, in the church in prayer and prophecy is not here. Um, the idea that male, like men are supposed to have authority and women are not is not here. Like So some of those things I queued up at the beginning, we didn't find any of that stuff here. But just to, there's like one elephant left in the room which is that in our culture, head coverings does not have the same cultural meaning. So now we've got this extra bit of work to, and I have been to churches where like, I've been to prayer meetings where I've, you know, like, oh, should we pray? Like, oh yeah, and then, you know, there's a woman in the room who's like, oh, I've got to like put something on my head, you know, just like, um, because they've read this as if this is a, a, a for all time practice. But we've got to understand the reason Paul's giving this advice to this Corinthian church is because of what having a head covering or not means. Okay? So if Brian gets up on Sunday to preach and he's got a hat on, we don't need to stone him. It's all going to be okay because having a hat on doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Okay? 
if, uh, if Molly gets up to pray and doesn't have a hat on, again, don't need to stone her. It's all going to be okay because it doesn't mean the same thing. So what we then need to do is extract the principles. I mean, there's this beautiful picture of mutually independent partnering in the kingdom, in, in the like, worshipping life of the church. But also the principles that like being sensitive to our culture matters. If we, I don't know, went to plant a church in Istanbul, like, yeah, us guys and girls, we'd have to readdress how we're going to dress maybe. Like, we would have to start to, like, oh, how, how does this reapply in a different cultural context? So there's little bits of extra work to do, but um, I think you guys, that's a little bit more common sense when you've understood the text a bit better. So, whew! Hold on. Okay, a little over now. Well, we started a little, an hour, not bad. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we are going to have a little look at chapter 14. But which, that can be much shorter, much simpler to deal with. So before we do that, are there any thoughts or questions from you guys um, to help make better sense um, of what we just what we just walked through in this text? And because I need a drink, I'm going to pass this to Molly to maybe answer some questions because she's good at this too. Yeah, in chapter 7, verse 1. Okay. So the question was, just for the recording. Thank you. Um, is there anywhere that it says within the text that this was a response to some of the things coming up? And in for chapter 7, verse 1, it explicitly says that Paul is addressing some of the things that are coming out. Just so that the and recording has it. And then the second one's a little bit harder, but it's a rabbit trail. Um, you might not want to say anything. But um, the teaching, uh, so saying the head coverings aren't a big deal for us, and it's not culturally as relevant. Can you take that same principle and apply it to other issues in scripture, like divorce? Is divorce not, it should be differently because our culture is different? Or that is a massive question and a really good example. And that could be a whole other class or podcast, yeah. And what we have to do is work through the methodology of deciding, is Paul saying divorce is bad because within its culture it meant something? Or is God actually saying divorce is actually just a bad thing? Um, so that's, and that's, if I start answering, we'll have a really, you and I will have a really fun chat of half an hour. But yeah, that's the methodology. The methodology here, we've looked at the text and understood some of the why the author's saying what he's saying. And so often that then helps us answer the question, is this a kind of culture-bound thing? Or what here is the kind of universal stuff that's going to help us understand how this interacts with us in our culture at our time in a different place? And, I mean, divorce, and, and there's so many, right? There's so many of those things, yeah. And Anything else? Is there a, a name for this way of reading it? Like, you call it a ring? Yeah, people commonly call it, like, a rabbinic ring structure, Yeah, which I think is in the Hebrew. So in the Hebrew, you have that and you have chiasmus, which is a very similar sort of pattern of doing things. Um, and, yeah, and there's a, they're really closely connected, one grew out of the other. Yeah. How likely was it for the early churches to have received the Torah 
Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, when the churches first started, the pu- like public reading of scripture was a practice at the heart of the church, and the only scripture they had to read was the Old Testament. And normally they would read from a Greek translation called the Septuagint, which was a little bit like the kind of sacredness of the text of the Old Testament written in Hebrew. That was a kind of, you know, like seeing a scroll was like a holy moment. The Septuagint, not quite treated the same, especially in, amongst Greek readers. And so that would have been circulated a little bit more widely. Um, but you're right, and we can kind of extrapolate your question out to like, for us, it's really easy to have the reflex, oh, why not just look it up? Like, no Google, no smartphone. Like, to look up is no small thing in, in the ancient world. Yeah, so... Yeah, there's a specific you're talking about, but I like the general principle in that question as well. Yeah. I have a question. I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. I don't want to misunderstand. So, um, just for clarification, you repeated several times about women raising, but just to reiterate that there were women um, prophesying and praying in the worship service. Well, it, it actually states, um, you know, any man who prays or prophesies, blah, 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 and any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled. The problem was not whether women and men were praying or prophesying. The problem was what was on their head when they did it. So it just states there are men and women praying and prophesying. And at the centre of this idea of as mutual independence comes together, Mutual independence, mutual dependence. I've got to get that right. <laughs> mutual dependence comes together. Remember, he's trying to correct probably an erroneous view about the role of women. In so, in, the, in, in leadership, probably. Because actually, in, in chapter 14, we're going to see a bit more of a maybe less the leadership of a gathering and more just participating in the gathering. And at the center of it, he does talk about authority. But not that the woman needs to have someone in authority over her, but that the woman needs to dress in a way that she embodies the authoritative role God designed her to fulfill as a partner in the kingdom. The authority she's already got by by virtue of being one of God's kingdom image bearers. And, And not that women have got the authority and men haven't. Like what Paul's trying to, Paul's not, that's not a question Paul's trying to answer. Who has authority over who? Um, that's that's our that's our question because of Western patriarchy, but that's not really what's going on in Corinth. Yeah. And I think that passage I'll have it right in front of me starts out with like being imitators. So he's basically telling all of the converts how to worship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and they and they did have cycles of gathering in house churches and things like that. Yeah. Um, and they had, but in different ways to us. We tend to think like we have a service, we have a community group. They had, you know, prayer meetings. They had worship times. They had prayer times. They had love feasts. They had. They just have different buckets for how they did church than us as well. So again, 
that's if we try and just map this onto our practices without playing spot the difference, yeah, we're going to get it wrong again. Well, it does, yeah, so, well, we're, yeah, we're going to get to teaching and the gift of teaching and things like that, more specifically in Timothy, um, but the difference between our modern conception of teaching, for, for them, their conception of teaching was much more the kind of, I'm going to make disciples and explain something to you and talk it through with you in a rabbinic kind of context model rather than standing up and declaring, hey, I think God wants us to know this. What they would have called that, which is more what we think teaching is, um, uh, may, maybe um, we, what they thought of as teaching, we would maybe call being a community group leader or something like that. Whereas what we think of as teaching, they probably would have used the word prophecy for so, so that's the caution of when you say it doesn't say anything about women teaching, I'm like, no, we're going to get to that. But if by teaching you mean can a woman stand on a stage on a Sunday and read the scriptures and declare things that we believe God wants to say to our church, that's what prophecy here means. No, because they didn't have stages. So I'm just translating into a modern context. The kind of standing in front of an assembly of believers declaring to a group of people this is what God has to say that, the word they really use to describe that, prophecy so I think this is one of these examples Oftentimes, you know we have got used to traditions where uh, you know, it's become a litmus test of orthodoxy whether women are on stage when the Bible's open you know, it, what we call teaching um, and so uh, you know, then we bring that our way of labeling things to the text. It, you know, it's just interesting to read Timothy talking about teaching the role, the role of elders and things like that with the more rabbinic idea of what teaching actually was in mind. The declaring forth, this is what God's written and this is what God means and this is what God has to say to us, that fits in the box of prophecy. We just, we just have to translate between their words for things and our words for things. Yeah, that's, that's all I mean. So, so just, just for clarity's sake, you know, if someone says, oh, when it talks about a man and a woman praying and prophesying here, what does that have to do with teaching? And then we have to say, what do you mean? Do you mean their version of teaching or do you mean what we call teaching, like standing on a stage, the stuff I've just said? And if someone says, oh, I mean their thing about teaching, then you'd have to say, oh, well, Paul's not really talking about that here. We might want to look at Timothy to find something about that. But if you mean our modern thing, then yeah, although we call it teaching, yeah, that's what they would call prophecy. So yeah, that is what Paul's talking about. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Exactly, especially, yeah, within Judaism, yeah. The question whether a woman can have that sort of function in the church as a Christian is 
over to Timothy in a minute. Yeah. Okay, I want to really quickly say some things about chapter 14, and then we need to have a little break. So I'm going to try to be really quick here. So, um, I've got to find the right page in my notes. There it is. Okay. 1 Corinthians 14. So, I'm just going to, I'm going to read, and I didn't pick the best translation, but it's okay, just to refresh the verses we're talking about in the mind for you guys. So, and this, this is the last part of this ring homily. So we've talked, the, the thing we've just walked through, and then we go into talking about order in worship, about the body, gifts, we have a hymn of love, we talk about order and gifts and the body again, and then we arrive back at this worshipping group of people and how they're supposed to function together. And so uh, it is verse 33. Um, I don't know if your Bibles have got this. There's a paragraph break in the middle of verse 33. This is one of these really unfortunate placements of a verse number. So we're just going to pick it up in the second half. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, what do we do with this? Well, not a page ago, Paul talked about women praying and prophesying, speaking publicly. Like I was kind of joking with Molly, like we can't walk away here with the theology that women are allowed to prophesy, but only through the medium of mind. Like that, that's not a sensible interpretation. So whatever Paul means, he can't just mean the face reading of the English here, which is, hey, all you women, zip it in church. Like that can't be what it means. So what could be going on? Okay. In the last section, if you read... Um, the rest of chapter 14. <coughs> Paul has told tongue speakers and prophets to both be silent. And the, the problem was that they were exercising their function in the church in a disorderly way. So like one person would speak, start speaking in tongues and then whether or not there was someone to interpret or not, like they would just keep going. Or someone would have a prophecy and someone, like, have you ever been in those meetings where, like, everyone's getting ideas sparking off and then before you know it, there's six people speaking over each other? That was church for them. And so Paul has already told two groups of people, this is the problem, be silent. It's really important we approach this verse with that context. Otherwise, it can just be like, yeah, there's prophecy, we got tongues, and then like, boom, you get hit by a brick in the head. Women, shut it. Like, where did that come from? What's going on? Like, no, this language has already been being used a few times. So it seems like the issue here is orderly worship. And actually, this whole homily ends with this language of this kind of orderly, um, kind of reputable, meaningful way of doing worship uh, that everything would be done decently 
and in order. Um, and so whatever it is that Paul is addressing, there's something going on with the women in this church that is disrupting the orderliness of their worship service. Okay, so there's something happening in the church that's being addressed. Paul is not here laying out like a um, irrevocable kingdom principle that women should just like. I don't know Paul just had a really bad day with some woman who said something. He's like, "That's it. No women ever get to speak again." Like that's that's not the kind of principle that's being dealt with. <coughs> um, and there's another ring pattern to this as well. But I said I'm going to do the quick version, so we're not going to get into that. But it, the the climax here. Um, shows us that um, there, there's a group of married women that Paul is addressing as a subset of the people in this service. Um, and so women are they're in, not encouraged, but told you know, uh, to be silent. But they've been told in chapter 11 not to be silent. They just have to have someone on their head. So what's going on? Um, Corinth. A little bit of information about Corinth. So Corinth is this massive cosmopolitan city, biggest city in Greece. It's on all these crossing trade routes. It has a huge manufacturing workforce, um, tons of slaves. And uh, so Greek is the language of trade. Like everyone would have known enough Greek to say six apples and a banana, please. Like to do their shopping, to pay their rent. I was about to say to pay their electricity bill, that would have been weird, uh, to pay whatever bills they had, like just to get through life. But for most people um, in this cosmopolitan, well, not for most, for lots of people in this cosmopolitan city, Greek was their second or third language. In their homes, they would have spoken a different language. On top of that, um, you've got multiple accents. So the Greek is being spoken with different accents by all the different speakers. I'm trying to, what I want to do is paint a picture for just how right the situation was for communication mayhem. Um, on top of that, um, the uh, ancient cultures always had like a classical formal version of their language and a kind of informal, casual, speak it at home version of the language. For example, we often say, oh, there's classical Greek and Koine Greek, which is the, the style of Greek that the New Testament is written in. But even the Koine Greek that the New Testament written in, is written in is still a formal, classical version. The spoken version of Koine Greek, the informal version, we have no idea because that wasn't written down. But in a formal setting, like a church you know, speaking, doing their worship service together, they would have used the more classical, formal version. But in a domestic setting, they would have used the informal. And now we're starting to catch some of the clues about the groups of people that the mayhem of communication would affect more. Because if you are a woman, you are going to be much more unfamiliar with a formal use of language in the, and a style of using language and even the, uh, the duration you didn't have a box for talking about something for more than 15 seconds before you had like some interruption or something else to do. And that may be exaggerating, but the idea of sitting for an hour or two and listening to something was very, very unfamiliar. And so all of the skills to communicate in these kind of contexts and these kinds of way came hard to the general population, but especially to women. 
And so the, the writer of the, uh, the Kenneth Bailey, the guy I mentioned, who's really good on all of these cultures, says he even experienced this when he was uh, a missionary preaching in Egypt where the churches were segregated and he was asked to speak formally for about an hour because that was what the men, you know, in their roles in business and the life of the city and things like that were used to. That was the setting the church had. For the women, they were alien to what was going on. And he said he would speak and after like a minute, notice like he's lost all the, all the women on one side of the church and they would start chatting. They would start talking. And, and what he learned was that they weren't chatting because they were bored. They were chatting to try to help each other understand what was going on. And he says, you know, after about 10 minutes, the elder of the church would stand up and be like, women, we need to do things in order. Be silent. They're like, okay, Ken, carry on. And, he, and then this, like, this cycle would go on and on, basically. Um, and the interesting thing, that's a like, modern contemporary bumping into a very similar problem. But we've got ancient writers who describe the same thing. So John Chrysostom, who's a third century church father, describes almost exactly the same scenario playing out in the church at Antioch, which is not a million miles away from Corinth. And so it seems like what is happening in the church is that because of the difficulties to communication, the women are just taking to just, well, let's just talk it out right now. We don't know what's going on. We'll just like, we'll start now like our own sub-gathering. And they're probably sat in linguistic groups. So it's not like one. It's like, depending on how big their you know, church gathering was, but all these little sub-conversations now spark up. And before you know it, no one can hear what's going on. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's exactly the same problem they had with the way they used speaking in tongues and the way they used prophecy. We've got the same theme three t- of, of a type of disorder three times in a row. And we've got the same solution presented three times in a row. You need to be quiet. If someone else is speaking in a tongue and there's no interpreter, hold it. If someone else is prophesying, hold it. If you don't understand what's going on, if you've got lost, don't just start chatting. So we, we could maybe, uh, I would love it if the subtitle in our Bibles for this little section was no chatting in church because of its disruption to order. And so that's a little quick look at that. It's much easier to uh, deal with this short section. Okay, uh, I want to leave Molly some time. Sorry. We should break first. But we should have a little break because you guys have listened for a really long time. So we'll have a little break and then over to Molly and then what we don't cover will, as usual, make it into a podcast, I'm sure. And uh, as we break as well, just like something, actually we were praying before you guys came and one of the things I prayed and I was like, oh, actually, that's a really good thing to tell you. Like we want to be the kind of people that we know all of you could be coming from different places and that this can be a lot to process. Like, we want to be the supporters of you on that journey. Like, we want to be the kind of people that you can be like, hey, what about, like, I'd love to grab a coffee and talk more about this. And so I just want, like, I'm not, I want to, I'm always trying to create a baby and, like, get a bunch of work done before she goes on maternity leave, so I'm going to speak for her. But um, I would love to make time and just have that offer out there for you guys. Um, So I'm just going to say that before I forget. Right, let's grab cookies if there's any left, stretch your legs, and then into Timothy we go. ...interact with today, so um, do my best to kind of filter that through. And then 
Um, we'll talk about some of the structure around First Timothy 2, 12 in particular, and make some room for questions. So I'm going to read the ESV version, because uh, that's going to be the one that um, we're going to go after probably most frequently, um, and some of the interpretive issues. So in verse 11, it says, Let a, le- a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So just a few things to talk about, right? (laughs) So, uh, It's pretty (laughs) (laughs) self-explanatory. Thank goodness it's not. So uh, some historical context for this particular passage and for Timothy in general is Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. So uh, maybe in contrast with a letter like Ephesus, it's a big letter, and it's actually written to multiple churches in the city of Ephesus, so it functioned a lot like a circular letter. So it addressed high-level issues, and that letter made its way through lots of different house churches in that time. This letter is written to one person at one church and is addressing one large issue there are some other things that are sprinkled throughout but the primary motive that's being demonstrated and the primary correction that's being called out is false doctrine and false teaching so we see this because right at the beginning in verse 3 he makes that very clear that this is what he's here to do and what's interesting is oftentimes paul has this kind of format of starting with thanksgiving I thank God for all of you. You see that in tons of different um, examples of his letters. He doesn't really start with gratitude at all. He literally just gets right to business. And then he doesn't really do anything on the um, closing end either with the greetings and all of that kind of stuff. So this letter is pretty abnormal for Paul in the way that he usually writes to the churches of Ephesus or the church in Corinth, etc. This is a particular letter written to a particular pastor at a particular church calling out a particular issue, teaching on false doctrine. And some of the themes that we see come up is a concern for character uh, and what to do with those who stumble in their leadership. Um, He's addressing family life and a commitment to sound teaching, which seems like the perfect antidote to this false teaching correction. So the question then becomes, why are women specifically involved? Why are they addressed, etc.? And they uh, do receive a great deal of attention in First Timothy, and there's no other letter in the New Testament in the New Testament in which um, they figure so prominently on a large scale. Not particular women like Phoebe or Junia, but women in general. Um, this also sits in the cultural context of Ephesus, which was uh, similar to that of Corinth. Um, Luke talks about it in Acts 19, but there was this pretty predominant cult, the cult of Artemis. She was the child of Zeus and Leto, the sister of Apollo, and instead of seeking fellowship amongst her own kind, she sought the company of human males as she was um, functioning as a little bit more of like a demigod, and this made Artemis and all of her female supporters superior to men. This was the cult's ideology. The influence of Artemis helps us to understand Paul's correctiveness. So a bunch of women are coming to Timothy's church straight out of this cult of Artemis, where they believe that women are superior to men. 
that they should have domineering authority over men based on some of the ideologies that are existing in the cult in Artemis. And so Paul is going after a very specific issue based on the cultural context that's being um, lived in live time towards this, this particular church in Ephesus. Now, we're going to, uh, if we have time, unpack a little bit around um, why Paul kind of pulls back into the foreground that Adam was uh, sourced first and then Eve, um, and that uh, women will be saved through childbearing. But some helpful context is that in the cult of Artemis, women would turn to Artemis for her for um, safe travel, excuse me, through safe travels through the childbearing process. And so what's being called out here in particular is that rather than finding safety, rather than finding trust and comfort in this Artemis that was supposed to supply and put at bay all of your anxiety around fertility and all of your anxiety around childbearing, God himself has set you up to take care of you, to protect you, to keep you safe. So he's calling them out and saying, Artemis is not the person to be trusted in in this issue. Rather, it is God himself. But more on that later if we have some time. So starting in verse 11, what is first overlooked is the preposition that is paired with the statement, let a woman learn. So in, uh, in NIV, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. In the NLT, it says women should learn quietly and submissively. And in the ESV, it says let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So the Greek supports that the prepositional phrase is actually adverbial and a descriptive of how a woman is to learn and conduct herself. Calmly, peacefully might be a more accurate translation. This is not equivalent to the adjective silent that would be modifying the word noun. The sentence structure is modifying the infinitive verb to be. So a lot of boring language stuff that basically means oftentimes translator take this to describe a state of being for a woman that a woman needs to be silent when the more accurate translation is a description of how a woman is to learn which is calmly peacefully and a signal back to some of the stuff that Richard was talking about they tended to be a little bit chattier a combination of a lack of education and not totally understanding the language contributed to a chaotic environment and this is another direct call out to say, this is how they should learn. Not that they should remain silent, but that when they are learning, the posture, the appropriate posture of learning is actually quietly, calmly, calmly and with all submissiveness. Now, the submissiveness word uh, is, in a learning context, logical to think in terms of a teacher-student relationship. So, uh, it is normal for a teacher to uh, expect a student's willingness to take direction. Uh, and a woman's prerogative to learn was not the issue as long as she did so with self-restraint, a prerequisite for any learning environment. So what is being called out here is a character issue on how women are to conduct themselves in a learning environment, not whether or not they should be able to learn or to speak. Next, we're going to verse 12. Verse 12 in the NIV says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
in the NLT, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. In the ESV, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, for some context, the English translation stemming from the 1940s to the present tends to gloss over some of the difficulties that come out of this passage. It's a little bit more of a black and white, this is just what it says, and therefore women cannot teach or exercise authority. It's more of a hierarchical, non-inclusive understanding of leadership. The language of leadership or women involved in general, it tends to be manipulated. We talked a little bit about that uh, in the past two weeks, if you weren't able to be here. And one of the primary places where this sort of bias tends to surface um, in this passage is post-World War II. So for those of you who were able to um, be here for the first night, we talked about feminism and some of the uh, feminist reactions that took place post-World War II. We see translations routinely render this clause, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. But we have centuries of earlier translations that have translated slightly differently. So, um, earlier versions of translations were not so quick to use exercise authority as a more neutral language, but rather um, used it as a negative, more domineering uh, in, its, in its use of authority. So, in the, in the first through fifth centuries, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, they recognized this early, early type of authority as being different, as being negative and domineering. Between the second and, or excuse me, between the 16th to the 20th centuries, again, used to describe negative behavior. But in more contemporary translations, we see the word exercise. So we, we, we see domineering, we see usurping, we see negative connotations showing up all the way up until the 20th century. And then all of a sudden, we see the word exercise, which becomes a lot more neutral and maybe even positive of like exercising authority is a good thing and women are not to do it rather than a negative type of authority, domineering or usurping. So it t causes us to question what kind of authority is actually being taken um, to be called out here by Paul. Is it an, a neutral exercising authority that women are just not to hold any type of authority? Or is there a particular type of authority that Paul is trying to get after here? And for that, we have to look at the actual word that he uses for authority. Blazing through, but we only have about uh, 10 minutes left, so I hope that I'm um, not going too fast. But on this third section right here, we've got uh, the Greek word authentane and the Greek grammatical structure of 1 Timothy 2.12. So that's the heading that we're operating under right now. So this is significant. This word that Paul uses for the word authority is authentane. And it's called a hopex legomenon, which is just a really fancy word that you never have to re remember again that essentially means that it only shows up once in the entirety of the New Testament. It's only used once. Paul often uses the word exousia for authority when addressing types of authority that are neutral or positive in nature. 103 times he uses the word exousia. One time he uses authentane, and it's in this context right here for this type of authority. An interesting use of this word is uh, found in a thesaurus for the Greek language three centuries later. So this is not a word that is used all that often. And it had an established de definition that conjures up negative connotation more in the classical Greek, but in the Koine Greek, we don't see it used all that often. We do see it used in the Council of Chalcedon. 
and it's used in this context. It says, I urge you to listen to me. When this reckless deed was done, they used authentane and broke into my room and grabbed me. So this type of authority that Paul is using here warns us of a type of authority that is destructive, one that hopes to initiate violence, one that is usurping and domineering in nature. So coming off the heels of a cult where women were the domineering forces not to be messed with under Artemis, Paul is making it very clear that this type of authority that they are using is not the way of Jesus. So Paul is not saying that women can't hold authority, exousia. It is a warning to a type of woman that is holding a particular type of authority, an authentic, a violent, domineering, usurping type of authority over a man that is antithetical to the way of Jesus. Controlling, violent, usurping. Sounds like Genesis 3, right? Finally, a big mistake that is made in the interpretation of this text is to assume that teach and exercise authority are two different ideas that Paul is banning women from. She is not to teach, she is not to exercise authority. This bias is often expressed in a neither-nor grammatical structure. For example, it's often translated, I do not permit a woman neither to teach authority nor to exercise Excuse me, I do not permit a woman neither to teach nor to exercise authority. Those are inserted in there for the grammatical structure. This type of grammatical structure present in the Greek language is only present to use synonyms or contrasting antonyms. So what I mean by that is we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.5. Neither the night nor the dark. Night and dark are synonymous. And therefore, a neither nor grammatical structure is used to be able to make sense of the passage. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, we see neither nor being used in antonyms. Neither this age nor in the age to come. So there's a contrast being taken place. Teach and exercise authority are neither synonyms nor antonyms. Though they may be in the same realm of giftings, teach and exercise authority cannot be used interchangeably. They're also not antonyms. They're not the exact opposite of one another. And so a neither nor type of grammatical structure is not appropriate for the interpretation of this text. Rather, we do see a pattern in scripture emerge in Revelation 2.20 when Jezebel is being called out for the deceptive teaching that is taking place. And it says, teaching with a view of deceiving. Starts to hyperlink the idea of teaching with the idea of deceiving. So if we were to use that same structure present in 1 Timothy 2 that's also present in in Revelation 2, is teaching with a view of domineering a man. So in other words, teaching is directly linked to the behavior being described. A woman is not to teach with the intention of destroying or dominating men. Paul would then be addressing and prohibiting a type of teaching that seeks to gain the upper hand, another character issue, rather than teaching itself. Does that make sense? So we've done a lot of textual work here, but a conclusion and a reasonable reconstruction based off of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. This is from Linda Belleville, and she's a brilliant author and scholar in the area um, of Ephesus, of Greek, and of 1 Timothy in particular. 
And she, she says it this way, the women at Ephesus were trying to gain advantage over the men in the congregation by teaching in a domineering fashion. So the type of teaching being described is one that is domineering, not two independent words of thought, not antonyms and not synonyms. The men in response became angry and disputed with what the women were doing. So what's being called out here is a similar warning that we see in Genesis. The desire will be for your husband and usurping of authority and chaos that's going to take place in what should otherwise be partnership amongst men and women. We see chaos start to ensue in this church because these women are coming off the heels of their power trip from the cult of Artemis thinking that they are the bee's knees, more important than men, coming in expecting to be able to teach and to exercise authority in the type of way that they've been trained up since they've joined this cult. And Paul says, no, I do not permit a woman. The last thing that needs to be um, mentioned here is that uh, Paul uses the plural women, gunikos, 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 to describe um, things leading up to this passage. And so he's talking about like how their heart needs to be when they're um, being distracted with the type of clothing that they're bringing in. He's talking about men not lifting up hands and getting angry. He's talking about women not trying to adorn themselves exterior in their exterior and replacing that with um, a heart for prayer and a heart for worship. And then he transfers from the plural, women, to singular, a woman. So if you look up at the top, the NIV and the ESV says, I do not permit a woman, I do not permit a woman. But in the NLT, it says, I do not let women. This is an incorrect translation. The word gune is singular in nature. And Paul is trying to call out a particular type of woman. Not women in general, but a particular type of woman who is demonstrating this type of behavior. And that, and that woman, as I've described, is the, the woman coming out of the cult of Artemis. Or a woman who is just being disrespectful in general. But it is, it is important to note that it is a particular type of woman. It's not women. It's not a big statement on an entire gender, but it is a specific type of woman that he's trying to call out. It's singular, not plural. I would like to challenge that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a woman should learn to bias and full submission. I agree that's kind of cultural context right there. Uh, maybe the, there was outspoken women in that particular church. Uh, but he says, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man, and she must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, there's more reason. It wasn't just taken into a cultural context. He took it outside the cultural context when he said, for Adam was formed first, then he, there's an order. And then finally, he even backs up further, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Adam obviously sinned too, but he knew what he was doing. But the bottom line is that God was very clear here that all scriptures God breathed and used for, for correction and training and all that kind of stuff that But, or whatever it was, but regardless here, it's, it's very clear that uh, in the context of roles for elders, roles for pastors, in all the context of what Paul is doing, he would not contradict himself in Scripture. So when you look at the full picture of things and you cross-examine, you look at the roles of elders and the role of a shepherd, you can't really take this context outside of all Paul's teachings to all churches and the fact that this is pulled out to 
all of Scripture for everyone to see, not just Timothy, because God knows that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to all people for order in the church. So I appreciate that perspective, but can I ask what you are particularly wanting to challenge in the argument? Like, just oh, all that, of it from head to toe, or? No, 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 that, that you, you can take out of context here to mean a single woman. So, so the Greek presents the singular woman. Yes. So it's not pull, pulling anything out of context there. He has a, an argument built prior to 1 Timothy 2.11. 1 through 10 is the plural. Let women, let women, let women. And then he makes a shift in his language to, I do not permit a woman. And it, it turns to but singular. To me it means the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just in one context he's talking about women in general. Or when you say a woman should learn, it's meaning all women. It's when you say a woman, it's still in the context of this whole thing. In the context of everything that Paul taught in the New Testament towards order in the church, it, it definitely would still mean a woman. And it still means a woman today, a woman yesterday. God doesn't change a woman should not have authority over man. And again, not in the way that we've misinterpreted authority. I agree, men have abused that term, and that's why we're even having this conversation today. Mm -hmm. Church has abused it. Men have abused it. Marriage, they've taken advantage of that word, that word authority. It should mean to lift your woman up like Christ died for the church. We should elevate the woman. That's what Christ was all about. But we can't take away the fact that God wants order. And mm -hmm. the way he created things was order. Adam first and Eve had nothing to do with Eve being any or worse than Adam or better than or, or superior or Adam being superior. It just had to do with order. That's it, period, order. And same with the church. The whole role of man in authority is not to subdue women, it's to lift our women up, but there's an order that God gave so that the church would operate smoothly, without chaos, without disorder. And the same thing in the home, too. Again, a good husband is not going to subdue his woman and say, you know, you're less than me. He's going to lift her up and elevate her. And unfortunately, culture has messed it up. Uh, spirituality has messed it up with women, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And we can do a lot better job. But I still think that we have to look at the full context of what Paul was saying to the church, to individuals, and the fact that this was going to be revealed to all people, not just to I, I wonder if partly what's going on in the question and I'm just trying to piece together because you said a lot of things um, oh yes I wonder if partly what's going on which you could speak to is um, although Paul does a shift in language that it is for a reason he's disagreeing that it's because Paul wants to talk about a particular group because he goes to Genesis so maybe it's the Genesis thing that's supposed to signal, hey, he's using a different word, but he doesn't really mean anything by it because the, the fact that Genesis right. comes yeah. in is supposed to right. signal something yeah. to us. So maybe talking a little bit about Genesis would help. Yeah, I think I would agree with the, um, the importance of order being established as well. I do think that we have often read this text in particular without any help of the cultural context. And I think because of the, the competing narrative at the time, which was running antithetical to the structure and order that was present in the book of Genesis, particularly in one and two before chaos and usurping takes place, it is important to understand because I think we get into dangerous territory if we start to take those types of things literally that women would be saved through childbearing. That, well, I think that's, that's also foreshadowing the coming of Jesus that Obviously, a woman is chosen, and Jesus is 
going to come through the woman eventually, right? Through right, through, through the seed. So, right. so yeah, so maybe something yeah. more high-level theology yes, is absolutely. taking place there. But I think we just need to be, I think from the perspective that I'm coming from, we need to be more cautious with the cult, warring cor- cultural narrative that a lot of these women are coming in with and that this, the, the nature of this le- letter is one that is corrective of trying to work against something that was being spoken in culture rather than to establish an all places, all times, all, all things type of order, but an order that uh, is found in scripture and runs antithetical to the culture. Yeah, that, that's your opinion, but yeah. that's, that's what I disagree with. Yeah. I think it was meant for all order to all time. Mm-hmm. Even in the beginning when Adam was created first, it, there was, a, there was a, a reason that he was created first that Adam, Eve out of his side. Not, again, superiority in any shape or form, but in terms of order. And that's, if you bring it back to Genesis, I don't think you can escape that. that there was order right from the beginning. Even before there was disorder in the man and the woman's relationship and possibly animosity between the two or competition between the two for the, after, after the uh, penalty of sin, that, that even started before that. Adam was created first, then Eve for a purpose. And again, nothing to do with superiority. Period. I just want to point out, like, we can disagree here, you know, um, but what I love that you're saying is you're articulating so much of the common ground that we share. Yes, absolutely. And that's and, what, and that's that is quiet, the major thing. That's why it's quiet the first two days, because everything I agree with yeah. completely. There's yeah. nothing to even, even the first yeah. half of this I didn't agree with. So I just like that this is a really good example of our disagreement is about something that's quite minor in the life of the church compared to like, do we love, do we respect, do we value as image bearer, you know, things like that. So this is a, this is a good example. So it is, it is 8.30, so I think we'll... Yes, absolutely, I'm going to grab your question. I just want to be mindful that we're probably going to go about seven to ten minutes over just out of respect to your guys' time. So you had a question. Yeah. Uh, so the question was, uh, Linda Bellevue, which I quoted at the very end, uh, she's present in the book, Two Views on Women in Ministry, which is really three views, um, good catch, uh, and that she holds what we would call from a theological perspective a more egalitarian approach, that the every level of, um, of leadership in the church can be for both men and women. Um, and so the question, may, maybe the question you might be asking is, is that what I believe or what Westside believes? Okay, or where we're going. Okay, um, so I think what can be helpful in this conversation, one of my favorite books um, on this topic is actually neither complementarian nor egalitarian. Um, it's re- written by Michelle Barnwall. It was on our list of resources last week, and she was a professor of mine at Biola. Uh, and I think the, those, um, those boxes that we can tend to put theological ideas into can tend to bring more... Um, disunity rather than unity. So though Lisa, or excuse me, Linda, would probably consider herself an egalitarian where all things for both men and women uh, take place 
I don't want the conclusion to be drawn that uh, because we used some of her resources in the teaching of this, that that means that we fully agree with everything that she has to say. Now, whether I personally agree with everything has to say, we can put aside for a moment, but I, can, I, I know that the eldership here holds to a male elder complementarian where their interpretation of 1 Timothy 3, which we'll probably have to do a podcast on at this point, um, is that the, the role of elder is reserved for a man only. And so we are not heading in the same direction that Linda would probably classify herself from a theological perspective. But that doesn't mean that we don't have something to learn from some of the ways that she interprets scripture. If I can speak as an elder. It's mostly because it's a different word for silent or quiet. So completely different concepts. Or it just That's different right. words are in use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason Paul couldn't have meant it in Corinthians was not because of anything to do with Timothy, but just because of the grammar and structure of Corinthians constrains it. Like in Corinthians 14, where it says there should be submissive submission, we can leap to, to men. But if you read that whole chapter, you'll, you'll realize that to men is absent. Like the kind of submission that's being talked to in the, con- in the context, especially with the ring formation in is probably to worship leadership, which was the other half of the ring in chapter 11 at the beginning of the whole homily. And so it's, it's just, it's nothing to do with Timothy, our interpretation. Um, but we, we do want to have a consistent theology between these two. And, you know, women being, um, you know, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. It doesn't say with all submission to men. Like, that that would be to import something into the sentence that's not there. That would be an inference of our understanding of some other things. Um, the, the kind of submissiveness that's there, like Molly said, is the submissiveness that's appropriate to a teacher, but also to a godly person, because at the top of the chapter, the same concepts are in play when Paul says that we should pray for those in authority that we may live a quiet and peaceful life. So it's just trying to use the concept um, to, sorry, the context to make sense of it. I think Paul was speaking to the women in this church today. He would say, you guys are very humble, you're very gifted. God has mighty roles for you to play within this church. It's just not still for this one role, because that's the way God designed it. It has nothing to do with discriminating against you. It's just the role that God has given to man and woman. Yeah. Um, I, before we do another question, I just wanted to continue speaking to your first question as well, because I actually sit on the elder board. Um, and so a newly minted elder, if you will. Um, but because the, the way you phrased it as well is like, and where are we going? And I think that was a really important part of your question. And Molly said something. But I just wanted to let you guys know that for over a decade, this church has had a theological position of being soft complementarian. Our interpretation of these passages in, in terms of what the elders have agreed are good guiding principles for our church have not changed for over a decade. And that, in practice, what that looks like is that there is only one enduring role in the church, 
which we say is for men rather than women, and that is elder. It, and, and then terms like uh, uh, prophecy, teach like teaching, these are exercise of gifts. Um, and uh, like being a pastor, exercising pastoral gifts. Um, you know, those are things that get done in the church, not a role in the church. The, the only enduring roles in the church are that of deacon and elder. And we have deaconesses pointed at, so we know there can be female deacons. Um, and and I, because someone mentioned earlier, like the idea of pastors, we, again, the way we use the, the the term for us in the modern day in English, we can tend to think of pastor as being the lead person. But in the New Testament, pastor just meant someone who's functioning in a way that they're shepherding people. And so I would say, like in the New Testament church, every elder had to be a pastor because part of the duty of an elder is to make sure the flock has is good welfare it's being cared for well um, but there could be people exercising pastoral gifts and pastoral callings who are not elders and there are some of them exampled in the new testament who are not elders as well and so the church has had an enduring position here what's changed is that Although we've had a, a female pastor for the last seven years, we have not done a great job of raising up and including women in all the areas of the life of the church we feel they can be in. And for a long time, um, you know, we just didn't have many women in lots of roles in the life of our church. And I think what sparked this, the need for this conversation is having people like Molly and Shelby teach. And the reason for that is not because we've changed our theology or changed our view on the practice of things, because we've always had non-elders teaching, uh, and or even to use the New Testament term prophesying, right? Um, but it's taken a long time for us to raise up, develop, build trust, and like to actually develop people where we're like, this person's ready to stand in front of our church and do this. So what's changed is the the development not anything about our position um, and so that that sort of question of like where are we going is like well our theology and our stance has not changed what we're doing is we're catching up with living into the reality of it as so I hope that like little bit of history of West Side and where we're at is helpful for you guys just knowing where we're at as well I thought it was useful to know information Oh, no. I, I mean, before we had a female pastor, we were a soft complementarian church before then. It's just we just didn't happen to have any female pastors for a long time. But the elders worked through, like, what's our theology? Do we believe we can have female pastors? Because we don't think being a pastor is the same as being an elder. Does it involve shepherding the flock, a pastor? Yeah, or a part of the flock, or you know, a particular... Yeah, group of people. When clearly says what an elder could be, it seems like how much more the pastor, the one that's teaching over men, would be qualified under that same thing of shepherding the flock, both men and women. And again, female pastors, I love. There's many female pastors that are teaching women in all kinds of ministries. And Molly being a prayer minister, I totally, she's very gifted in that area. So I have no problem with any of the things other than what the Bible says about uh, you know women having authority over men in the, in the particular order of the church. 
Yeah. And then the founding father of this church build and his wife, they navigate that system, that this biblical concept very well. And that was part of the church when it first founded. We said we're going to honor this word of God, and God is going to prosper because we're honoring every word in this, in this Bible, right? So Diane is a very gifted person. She was offered to be a pastor. Of course, no, God says I cannot be a pastor. But she's come up and shared her testimonies in a very beautiful way, and I've always appreciated mm-hmm. it. And that would be a great example of where Diane's theology and, and what you're articulating is in disagreement with what the elders have said. Yes, unfortunately. But she's living by her convictions, which is because, fine. But unfortunately, because the founding pastor of this church is probably in disagreement with this too. Although Phil has actually said, and publicly, like, I'm, I'm in line. Like, again, he says, I see things differently, but this is what the elders have prayerfully done. And it's not dishonouring to God's word. And he was happy to still... He's still a pastor at large. So a pastor at large. An elder at large of Westside. And, so, and to say, yeah, this is what the elders of Westside have decided. And I can get behind that. So it, it did start when Paul... Uh, to, I mean, was starting the church. Uh, the philosophy was different. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there, there was... The, the el- so Phil's position is is quite hard complementarian, quite sort of more old-fashioned complementarian. And when the elders then came to address it, because the question then came up, hey, what are we as a church going to believe about this? That's when they spent quite a lot of long time working through it. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you say all of a sudden. It wasn't an all of a sudden. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It was worked through carefully, prayerfully, asking trusted theologians to come help, like give the give training to the elders, things like that. I don't know because I wasn't here then. You might need to ask one of the elders who's been around for a longer time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, but again, I just want to distinguish, and so I'm perfectly willing to, to say, like, the church may not have done a good job of communicating it. And that is one thing we can, like, and not getting communication, like, nailed all the time. Yeah. Definitely the church dropped the ball multiple times. But our actual, our actual views and theology, that's not something that is currently in flux, and it hasn't been in flux for a long time. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, but with some variety. What we agree on is this is the right space to hold for Westside. Wow. With some varieties on like how we approach different parts, or we might agree that it's the right space for some different reasons as well. Okay, I'm going to hand it back to Molly because I just said loads. Yeah. So we could do some group to get together, like 
we could we could do some group get together. That's a possibility. I wouldn't want everyone to feel like they have to be a part of every part of the conversation. So if there's a few people, we're like, we've all got this question. Could we chat about this together? Yeah, definitely. What we've tried to do in this class is just lay a bit of a foundation. Like we haven't answered every issue. We haven't answered every question. You know, and like we keep saying, uh, the volume of material to be taken into account for us to rightly interpret all of these verses is growing exponentially all the time. Because it wasn't until the last few decades that biblical scholars really stopped assuming they knew what it meant and started getting asked some questions and started digging into it. And that spewed textual research, grammatical research, historical, cultural research, like loads of stuff. So it's always going to be an ongoing conversation as well. Well, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. You can't, you, if you would, if you were willing to just make up history and apply it without any sort of, you know, methodology or training to the text, you could end up making any bit of the Bible say anything. But, you know, and if you want to be like, well, I want to see the sources for myself, you're going to have to go get a PhD in history to go get access to the source material and learn loads of hermeneutics. So there's, a, there's an extent to which maybe, you know, it, it's not actually appropriate for us in our context as leaders in a church to try to do all the work of scholarship for you. Because what we actually do is stand on the shoulders of those scholars. And you, you as well have access to their books and articles. You know, you can go to courses, you know, all those things as well. Um, but there may be a line at which we say the kind of level you want to dig, to dig into, it might be appropriate to go become a historian, you know, and that that's the extreme exaggeration. But you you know you see this kind of point, right? My secondary question was for the original elders that made this decision as a documentarian, was there ever a published document that they wrote up? Because I know my parents went talk to the elders, and there was not a document given to them. There was just a bunch of round up notes essentially, which talks many other Real yeah, like a position statement or something. Get a position. Yeah. But you didn't have all the reasoning, all this prayfully. You talked about this decision was made carefully, prayfully. You went through all the verses, all the reasoning. Is there a published document that's signed by the elders that shows all this? Yeah, so part of the position is, is on the website in the about page. But what you might be wanting is a much more extensive and thorough document. And I don't think we do have that. Yeah. And, and it's the sort of thing I would love to help the elders write. So I'm, I'm not saying we haven't got it and I don't think we should. I actually think bringing more clarity would be good, but we don't have one at the moment. Was it actually done carefully originally then? Well, things, things can be done carefully without you documenting it, right? I mean, we do stuff in life like that all the time.
Yeah. One more class to finish, First no, Timothy. Yes. Well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure uh, outside of the podcast uh, just so that we don't feel like we have to make a, a decision right yeah. now so that we're not aligned on it my, but I appreciate that I'm just going to steal my my suspicion would be um, it might be good for us to articulate some more about this on like on the podcast um, but then what might be more beneficial would be to then interact about that rather than come just to hear it presented like to hear that little extra 20-30 minutes presenting a little bit extra information um, and, and we guys can you know we can always create space for that I'll let you guys know um, and you're always welcome to approach us to ask could I have a bit of time you know to interact as well um, yeah so I, that might be a likely good way forward uh, by the way, some people are getting up because they've got to leave. The rest of you, if you want to go or need to go, don't feel bad. It's fine. Um, yes? Verses 1 through 10 of 1 Timothy 2, Paul is using women, gunikos is the, Greek, is the Greek original word, and that's just the plural of gune, which is a woman. Okay. Now he makes that shift in verse 11, a woman should learn, I do not permit a woman, those are all singular, gune. Yes, but but he he starts off the conversation with the singular woman. I I a woman should learn in this way, and then the NLT translates it as plural, and both the ESV and the NIV translate it as singular. And oftentimes, when we see an inconsistency in translation in the English, you have to go back and dig deeper as to why there was a discrepancy. And so there's a little a little bit of confusion around whether or not Paul's setting up a grammatical structure that's supposed to say consistent as singular, singular, singular. And that is a, that's more consistent with the rest of his writings, or if there is something going on there where all of a sudden he, trans, he transitions back to, uh, back to plural. The NLT is actually the most loose translation of the three that I've presented. ESV is more word for word. Uh, NLT is way more of a thought for thought. And so most scholars these days agree that uh, it is singular in nature all throughout, starting in verse 11, both ESV and the NIV. So, your version of the Greek, when you're looking at the verse 12, you're translating it as the Gune, or the Gune has the Gune? 
Goon, say that again. Uh, no, so I, maybe maybe we can take this yeah. part and be looking at the same thing because several different Greek translations is where I'm a little cautious because there's not all that many Greek translations. There's a lot of English translations, but I would be wanting to look at the same thing to make sure. And sometimes Google can be a little bit. Well, yeah, that's why I wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, maybe we do a follow, maybe maybe we make sure we're looking at the same thing to follow up this conversation. But I appreciate your question. Thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds great. And then if, if you have any more lingering questions, yeah, feel free to approach us. But Jesus, we just thank you, um, yeah, for this group of people who were willing to come for three weeks and to uh, trudge through a lot of important information around these topics so as to faithfully engage and interpret the text. I thank you for the ways in which you're working in their hearts um, not just their minds, but like coming before you with all of ourselves, wanting to learn from you first and foremost. God, thank you that you don't work in isolation, but that we want to worship you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Um, and so, God, we ask that this would be glorifying to you. God, that you would be honored in this place. We bless your name and we thank you um, for your word that is living and active that has the power to, to transform our lives. So thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for this group of people, and I ask that you would bless them as well as they continue to um, stir and contemplate uh, all the things that we've talked about, God, and um, go forth with um, maybe a little bit of clarity, but a lot of hope for a future wherein your kingdom um, is coming on earth as it is in heaven. So thank you, God. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thanks to you guys for coming and being a part of this. Appreciate it.